But actually, I think there's quite a lot to be said for uh, just doing simple things really, really well. So things like hydrating well, eating the right things at the right time, uh, and, and being able to sleep uh, and regenerate, I suppose, through, through sleep. And uh, so I think if you've got those three things in place, you're in a really good position then to start looking elsewhere. So I think if you try any recovery strategies, make sure you've got those, if you like, three pillars in place. Because if you haven't got it there, then the things that might make a difference are probably not even going to touch the sides. So there's no point taking cherry juice and throwing yourself into a cold water bath if your nutrition's rubbish and you haven't rehydrated and you're sleeping really badly. Hello there, I hope you're doing well. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. So I'm a sports and performance scientist and have supported athletes throughout my career. And in this podcast, I speak to Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, top level sports coaches and researchers breaking new ground in sports performance. But we also know that performance doesn't just exist in sport. And that's why we value having people on this podcast from all sorts of performance backgrounds, military, performing arts, musical theatre, to name just a few. In all walks of life, we can learn from the pursuit of a better way to create performance. So I hope that you can draw some lessons out of these conversations or just reflect and draw some inspiration so that they can help you along with whatever it's in front of you now. This week's guest is Glyn Howitson, Professor of Human and Applied Physiology at Northumbria University. Glyn's specialist subject is recovery, but it's recovery with a purpose, and that is to optimise neuromuscular adaptation. And I spoke to Glyn to try and cut through some of the noise, make sense of an area that has, to all intents and purposes, exploded in interest over the last few decades. And as you'll hear from the conversation, recovery, training, planning, interventions, they're all really quite dependent on context, timing, circumstance and demand, which can at times really make this subject feel like a bit of a Rubik's Cube. You turn one and another one has to change as a consequence. But what Glynn does really well, and he has done for as long as I've known him, he helps make the complex simple and with that practicable which for me is a real signal of true expertise in this area. Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. How are you? Very well, Steve. It's, uh, it's, good, to, it's good to hear you. Look, we should probably get straight into this because um, there's a danger that we could natter on for a few days. Uh, especially, especially as I know you well and we've, we've got a long uh career and background together um but especially the fact that we share an interest in recovery and adaptation your specialist sort of topic um so just just for people that are tuning in glenn just give us a bit of a mini intro mini bio for for people who who might not already know who you are um my name's glenn howardson and i'm uh, a professor of human and applied physiology at northumbria university um and I'm very much an applied physiologist. Uh, I'm not particularly mechanistic in, in the way in which I do things. Um, so the so what factor, if you like, is very, very important for me. Uh, probably the biggest part of uh, our work that we do at Northumbria is, is around understanding exercise stress and fatigue and how our bodies deal with that. 
uh, the recovery process that happens as a result of that, and then, if you like, the the adaptive response. So essentially, we're looking at that sort of continuum of stress, recover, and adaptation. And of course, the sort of the, the, the keystone to that is is the recovery element, which we've been looking at for you know a whole number of years now. So by understanding that whole continuum, I think we get a much better flavour for for how recovery might be important not only to to facilitate the best response from that exercise stress but then also to have the best outcome in terms of adaptation Uh, so why recovery why why, what got you started along that particular path glenn well it probably started from my undergraduate degree i suppose there was an interest in uh recovery strategies and at that time cold water immersion was sort of emerging if you like as uh, oh this is quite interesting what's what's happening with that but actually, it's probably derived from my inadequacies <laughs> physiologically. So I always remember doing strenuous, <laughs> doing strenuous physical activity and, you know, getting particularly sore afterwards. And it was just thinking, I wonder why that's happening. So as, as time progressed, I did a, an undergraduate project in, in uh, actually it was ice massage, not cold water immersion. And then went on to do a PhD uh, with someone who, you, who you'll know, Ken Van Someren. And uh, we looked essentially at, at very strenuous exercise. So we used eccentric muscle damage and then different types of intervention to, to uh, try and alleviate some of those negative signs and symptoms. And then, and then ultimately how we might best uh, adapt to that. So there's a whole range of things that came from that PhD. But, but the recovery element for me has always been interesting from a personal perspective but also I've got this sense that if you get recovery right, then you probably get a really good opportunity to maximise the stress that you're giving to people. But then also you've got this opportunity to maximise the adaptation that you get from that stress. So for me, it's almost a little bit like the holy grail, because if you can get that right, then the stress that you put in, you can optimise to get the best adaptation. So so your own personal experience, so getting particularly sore, um, it's not that you want for a bit of muscle mass though, is it, Glenn? Um, <laughs> you've got that, you've got that particular genetics down, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I think I've unofficially got the largest calves in uh, sports science, but, uh, <laughs> 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 there's a few people that will vouch for that. <laughs> that's not from doing a whole bunch of eccentric exercises on your calf. That's just something your mum and dad gifted. Yeah. Yes, bless them. Uh, it's, uh, they're not they're not particularly good for running, I have to say. But um, but there are other activities. Well, r- well, my history was was rugby. So uh, you know, I played hooker for a while um, to a reasonable sort of standard. And um, yeah, so I suspect some of it's come from from the stresses and strains of of, of rugby. So uh, amongst other things. So, <laughs> but always being involved with sport. Um, even now, I sort of coach uh, community rugby as well as sort of obviously being involved with with the elite sport environments where I possibly can. I can't imagine coaching sessions with you. If you got you handing out the cherry juice, getting some ice baths, going after every other session, or uh, maybe you're just sticking to the the skills. I bet. Well, to be perfectly honest, I probably don't practice what I preach to be, you know, certainly to the level that I, that I would advocate for some of the people that we advise. But, you know, the things that I do is a pretty small beer in comparison to, uh, you know, what, what professional athletes are doing and what Olympic athletes are doing on a day to day basis. All right. So let's get into it then, because I um, I'm fascinated by this topic, as you know, I mean, I, I did my undergraduate di- uh, dissertation on 
muscle soreness as well. And, and that's, we've probably got a similar start point to, to our professional careers, at least in terms of researching. Um, but the, the stress adaptation, stress recovery adaptation, uh, the, the continuum there is something that ultimately dictates your response to exercise, your ad- your, how much you improve. And I think whilst it seems as though it's so fundamental to learning about muscle, learning about response to exercise, it's actually such an easy thing for a lot of athletes and coaches to forget when they get fixated into the numbers of what's your training volume, uh, what's the training intensity? How long did we train for? And thinking more about the numbers as the outcome, the the fixation that that's how Seb co-trained, that's what Usain Bolt does, as opposed to this is a program that works for me that I've worked out over time, was in a similar situation to you and thinking muscle soreness, that's got to be a bad thing. Let's try and reduce that down. When... Uh, a wonderful athlete I worked with, Hayley Tullett, um, who was bronze medalist, 1500 metres at the World Championships in 2003. When ice baths started to go, you know, crazy, everyone was doing them. And, um, and she said to me, last year I didn't do ice baths. This year I have done. I feel fresher after my hard sessions. I'm, I can up my mileage by 10%. And then, and so we're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she put her training diaries down. She said, I'm not quicker. I'm not quicker. Am I doing more just to get the same effect? And that was such a clangor moment where I just sat back and just thought, yeah, biology is probably smart, isn't it? So I'm, I'm fascinated by this particular topic. That's just such a critical perspective from an athlete though, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think we listen to our bodies probably the way in which we should do. And, you know, we spoke a little bit um, before this podcast about um, doing a little bit of training on the Watt bike. And, you know, you get these prescribed uh, intensities and durations and so on. And actually, you know, we don't really listen to our bodies perhaps um, as, as much as we should do. So what might happen with with one individual, um, so for Seb, the Sebco incident, I think is is a really good example where you know he he was renowned for doing huge amounts of volume, for example, and um, you know that doesn't suit everybody. So there, there certainly isn't you know one size fits all, and it just reminds me a little bit of uh, a guy called Dave Costell, who is a sort of a, a one of the godfathers, if you like, of of uh, human physiology, particularly uh, sport and exercise science. And the purpose of training is to stimulate growth and adaptation. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And that can only happen in periods of rest and recovery. And I think sometimes we forget about the rest and recovery and how important it is to regenerate because actually it's those windows of opportunity where you're probably not doing very much where your body can can adapt, uh, you know, to, to the, the as best it possibly can. Um, so I'm not suggesting that you would, rest and recover until you were a hundred percent, you know, because the nature of, of, of athletic training is such that it, it, it doesn't really allow that because there are so many qualities that you are trying to enhance and uh, there's huge amounts of overlap between them. But, but certainly rest and recovery is, is absolutely fundamental. And I don't think necessarily training 
uh, harder or, or with more volume is necessarily the right thing. But it, it, it's a bit of a cliche, I suppose, but we should probably be trying to train more cleverly. So in other words, try and get the biggest bang for your buck. And I don't think we do that particularly well, particularly on an individual basis. Um, and I would say that's probably most prevalent in team sports where things probably get prescribed a little bit more carte blanche than they do perhaps in, in individual athletes. Okay, so there's raising Dave Costell. I mean, he, he did a fantastic study, if, if I'm not mistaken, on reducing the training volume for swimmers and the number of people that actually broke um, their season's bests, set new PBs, went through the roof. And um, whether this is now into mythology around Seb Coe, I think it was 1979 where he was doing his final year at Loughborough and his father, Peter Coe, tr- cut his training volume down. He said, we're just going to do less. Let's not worry about the season. Put it to one side. Um, just focus on your studies this year and chopped his training volume down and he broke three world records that year. <laughs> and you can, you know, you, it's quite difficult not to conclude something quite profound about whether he was doing the right thing or not. And it's quite an interesting dynamic with the COVID pandemic now where we're seeing just, I don't know whether it's a trend or whether we're, we're just alert to this. We're seeing far more people breaking PBs um, so many people setting new standards in athletic sports. It does seem as though it might be like a, a trend where people are finding a happy medium that they're, they're they're hitting a sweet spot of adaptation. That's probably something we can look back with some wisdom in a couple of years to see whether that's true or not. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't speak for for people's PBs, but I certainly think that that things like. Uh, the pandemic that we've been experiencing are definitely periods of reflection and being able to to maybe understand ourselves perhaps a little bit more than we perhaps otherwise would have done um, because you, you, you carry along and life's pretty busy, you know, for most people. And um, I think sometimes that you have these um, opportunities uh, to, to, to reflect on things that you're doing in your own training and, and even in, even in the, your own behaviour, I think, um, and you could probably adjust it. And I think lots and lots of people are going to come out probably more resilient, I think, probably more um, from an athletic perspective, probably a little bit more understanding of their own body and how more in tune that they might, they might be. Um, and that's probably because they've been taken away from, I suppose, the status quo and the day-to-day uh, uh, environment that they're usually in and doing things slightly differently. And, and maybe that's just a, an opportunity to freshen things up and, uh, so, so rather than seeing the COVID situation as, as something that, that can be negative, I think there are also some positives that we can draw out of this sort of situation. Yeah, and, and something, as some, something as subtle as, I've got to train today. Um, it's, it would normally be nine o'clock in the morning for the first session. I don't quite feel ready yet, whether that's a subconscious or conscious thing. I might go out this afternoon instead something as subtle as that sort of shift and being able to space a little bit more, feel like you might be a bit more ready to go for it. Um, that, that's some, that could be a major factor. And I'm just thinking of some quite pronounced changes in athletic performance that have come from just reorganizing people's training program 
spacing a bit more, train in the morning, train in the evening, allow time for adaptation to, to resonate in the muscle cell and, and, and the systematic changes, that, that importance of time. Whereas perhaps the amateur days, the 90s, everyone used to train in the morning and do as much as they could. First session, mm. quick breakfast, second session, maybe some weights and then go and work. Uh, and that was probably one of the biggest changes in adaptation that came just from the professionalization that I've, I've, I've seen. It reminds, it reminds me of, the, of, of, you know, some of the, um, and this is a sport that's very close to you, Steve, is rowing. And I remember that, you know, some of the guys that weren't necessarily on the GB program, they would be absolutely rinsing themselves every single evening, but they were trying to do this endurance and strength sessions all in one and and you know you couldn't get a more concurrent sport i suppose than than rowing and and it always always reminded me of some of the guys they used to go down and they would do say i don't know 12 18 kilometers first thing in the morning come off and they would have a quick sandwich and then they would just jump straight in into the gym and then throw a few weights around and you just thought that's that is not the perfect environment and, for, and particularly what we know from the literature now you know that, that there's this probably there's this interference effect that that's um, that's going to blunt potentially the adaptations that you you're likely to receive. So so I yeah. think you're right that having this almost this opportunity, these windows of opportunity to rest and I suppose reflect, but also importantly for your body to regenerate, is are really important. Let's get into that then, because you've given me kind of permission or a bookmark. I was going to talk to you a little bit later on about that, but that seems apt to to go there. Where um, so my memory of working with the British rowing team in the late nineties. I, I go on about this too much. Sorry, uh, sorry to anyone who's just hearing the a hundredth rowing story <laughs> but you'd go down to henley and you've got the the guys down there and it would be exactly that um for some of them they'd have to go off to work so there was a legitimate reason for why would they would need to organize their training because if some people are going off to work then everyone's got to go into the boats at the same time um but, but for a few that actually had some lottery funding what it represented was an opportunity to go and play golf in the afternoon. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was on the program, but it meant that their program became really condensed. So it would be um, endurance, endurance weights, and maybe they'd mix up endurance weights, endurance. Can you unpack that for us in terms of the interference effect? There, are we talking about one pathway of? muscle stimulation for example overriding another or are we just talking about it kind of almost just can just blunting it all it just becoming too mm. overloaded and so nothing's really happening in the same uh, level that it could do yeah so so so, so i'm aware that there's people that perhaps are not aware of this sort of situation whereby Concurrent training really refers to um, doing strength type activity, so strength training um, alongside endurance activity. And, and we know from the literature, uh, we have a fairly good idea that, that one inhibits the other. So um, what seems to be apparent is that endurance activity inhibits the potential strength gains that you might get. So when you do these things within close proximity, uh, particularly if you do endurance 
first, uh, it, it can potentially have a blunting effect on those cell signaling pathways. It's really interesting, actually. The, 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 the original paper was a chap called um, called Hickson, and uh, if, if, if you if you recall him. And he, he was uh, doing a postdoc over in the States and uh, his mentor, which is John Holoise, uh, who, who you're probably also familiar with, a big endurance man, uh, he wanted to impress him. So they used to go out running together uh, quite frequently and um, he obviously wanted to try and compete with him a little bit. Uh, but actually, Hickson was a big strength man. So he was really big into... Um, I would say bodybuilding. I think he was, that's probably not too far off the truth. But but actually what he was seeing was that he was training just as hard as he ever was. But this endurance activity that he'd suddenly picked up meant that he was dropping muscle mass at a huge rate. And that could have been because of um, he's expending more energy, um, so therefore losing muscle mass. But anyway, he systematically had a look at this in, in 1980 and, and published a really interesting paper and basically got these three different groups so a group that did nothing a group that did strength and endurance and a group that did uh, strength training and what you saw is the guys that did strength and endurance training their improvements in strength were pretty good for the first few weeks and then they plateaued very very quickly whereas the guys that just did solely did did strength training they increased uh, much, much uh, greater than the strength and endurance group. And, and what they concluded is that there's some kind of interference effect, and that's the term that, that, that they use in the literature. We've done a little bit of work in this area, and it seems that you can probably get around that to a large extent because there are so many sports now where you have to have a good engine, good endurance capacity, but you also need to be strong, powerful, quick, so the, the, there are, the, there's almost this dichotomy, like, well, I need all of this. How am I supposed to put this together if there is this endurance, um, uh, interference effect? Uh, and you can, do, you can do this by a whole number of different ways. Um, and one of the ways is, is by polarising the training exactly how you described earlier, Steve. So you would do one session in the morning, have a good layoff during the day. And then later on, then you would um, do your other session. So then you're you're putting your um, your endurance and strength sessions at, at, at pole ends. Um, what I would say is that you probably want to prioritise strength training over over endurance training. So if you had to put them together in the same day, then you can. I would probably be putting strength training before before endurance. Although I hasten to add, there's not many people that like to do strength training first thing in the morning. They tend to tend to do it um, a little bit later in the day if they can. Um, I don't know why that is, but maybe it's just they feel a bit more, um, I suppose, lit up, so to speak, in the afternoon yeah, okay. rather than they do in the morning. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. But um, but certainly polarising the training or, or indeed doing it on alternate days, I think, is is a good solution to doing that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And and also the time course be, between the and, and it's difficult because you can't compare, you know, these, this is comparing apples and oranges here in, in terms of a strength load versus an endurance load. But the time course of adaptation, the time course of recovery being a bit longer for for strength based activities simply because I, I guess there's just more to do in terms of repair and recovery am i is that am i on the right lines there oh uh i mean Steve, the, the, the time course of those is, is not particularly well known because very often we're relying on muscle biopsies and they're taken at finite points so there's easily we've got 
windows of opportunity that we've missed. So, um, uh, but in the most part, um, that muscle protein, those cell signaling pathways happen pretty acutely. Um, if you're damaging muscle, so for example, you're doing heavy eccentric work, then you can expect that sort of cascade of events to perhaps be much, much longer because the repair process, of course, is is going to be longer. So there are, um, yeah, I suppose there are ways and means, and uh, but, but certainly those first few hours are pretty important. So getting the right substrate on board, making sure you have an opportunity for those cell signaling pathways to sort of, if you like, flourish uh, where they're not being impeded by other stimuli. Okay, so can I get dive into the detail here and, and think about the sort of interventions that are successful, useful at different times? So what I'm thinking here is is the difference between things that might assist recovery in terms of getting back to where you were before. So that could be useful for competition. I'm also then thinking of, of elements that might do that, but perhaps the bigger priority being that might boost or optimize the the adaptive response. And I'm cautious here about the wording, you know, boosting and optimizing. It could just be creating the right conditions for the right response to occur, as opposed to anything that might be supplementary, um, that might accelerate the, the response. And I don't know whether we can even get into that. Um, the, the parallel here is about people talking about immune boosting substances which seems to be relatively sort of you know it's poo-pooed by the professors about whether you can actually boost your immune system there's lots of things that you can do to just keep at the right level (laughs) um so that's one side and then i'm thinking about things that dampen the damaging response that they actually uh, take the bite off the soreness and whether you act that actually takes away from the adaptation in itself. So I've said a lot there. Um, let me give you something a little bit more focused as a, in terms of a question. Um, what are the things that we know that can can assist recovery and actually make things a bit quicker? Well, there's lots and lots of recovery strategies out there, Steve. And um, I have to say, I feel that some of it is snake oil. Um, quite honestly. Give us some snake oil to start off with then. Oh, goodness me. So there is, and this has been an interesting one for for a lot of coaches, I think, is that um, things like active recovery make you feel better, but probably physiologically not doing a whole lot. Um, Massage, um, there's a reasonable uh, body of evidence, but it's actually suggesting that it's not that helpful. It does make you feel better. Um, and that's something I think we should probably talk about is, is, is something big, you know, physiologically having a positive effect and actually psychologically having a, having a positive effect. But physiologically, it's probably not having too much of an effect. Um, I've seen, and you might get a load of spam emails about these um, self-massaging devices, which I essentially don't, mate, look but like... It a, depends. I think it's depending on your Google algorithm, but... <laughs> So, so essentially, they're like jigsaws, but with sort of um, uh, a device on the end okay, that's yeah, supposed yeah, yeah. to, yeah, supposed to repeatedly, um, you know, massage. There's no evidence for for, for this having a positive effect. Um, things like cold water immersion um, are uh, have been shown to have some modest effects. Um, 
But actually, I think there's quite a lot to be said for uh, just doing simple things really, really well. So things like hydrating well, eating the right things at the right time, uh, and and being able to sleep uh, and regenerate, I suppose, through through sleep. And uh, so I think if you've got those three things in place, you're in a really good position then to start looking elsewhere. So I think if you try any recovery strategies, make sure you've got those, if you like, three pillars in place. Because if they haven't got it there, then the things that might make a difference are probably not even going to touch the sides. So there's no point taking cherry juice and throwing yourself into a cold water bath if your nutrition's rubbish and you haven't rehydrated and you're sleeping really badly. So, you know, there are, there are some simple wins that people can make uh, very, very quickly, um, uh, which, which sounds counterintuitive. But actually, I think if you get those things right, you're in a fairly good, uh, fairly good place to start with. Okay, so um, there's a couple of points there that uh, I just want a few more specifics. Just you helping me out with this as much as anything. Things like amino acids, protein, things like vitamin E or antioxidants. Um, If I'm not mistaken, they can have a protective effect from a damaging bout. But, But does that take away from the response that you get from... You know, how much improvement do you make? Because if you're, you know, something like antioxidant, if that's helping protect the cell membrane, for example, is it getting less damage? Or actually, is it is it allowing your body to kind of overcome the mechanical metabolic stimulus quicker and then kind of kick on to, to a new level of protection and fitness and adaptation? Yeah, see, and we talked about recovery being the holy grail, and that's probably it, you know, so how much is enough? Uh, And it it goes back to this, um, for me, this idea about um, hormesis, which you you might have come across. And essentially, uh, what hormesis describes is basically, if you you stress at the system, um, you can get a positive response. And if you increase that stimulus, you can get an even bigger positive response. But there comes a point whereby the stress, if you like, then suddenly becomes a negative factor. So rather than you increasing in this sort of linear fashion, I'm not suggesting that it is linear, but just for argument's sake, let's just say as you increase the exercise stress. So if you, you do more you do more training, you get stronger, but it'll get to a point where those things are no longer uh, a benefit. And actually you seem to be reducing in what you're able to do. So that's where I feel that recovery strategies specifically um, might be having um, a positive effect. So in other words, it, it enables you to manage that that catastrophe cusp, if you like, of, um, of stimulus that's going to have a negative effect as opposed to a positive effect. Now, where that notational cusp might be um, is very, very personal. And I think it becomes very, very individualized. So understanding your, you know, your own body and your response to different, um, different stimuli, I think are really, really important. Okay. So you, you then raise a few issues around personal response. You give two, two people the same training stimulus, you're going to get a, a varied response. Are we any closer in terms of our understanding about, because we, we, it's easy to benchmark people. You can jump that far. That's the size of your engine. Um, that's the strength that you can produce. But what, I mean, I've, I've seen over time where you, 
somebody in the middle of the pack who hasn't perhaps got the the scores on the doors that might indicate excellence, but they can adapt. They adapt with training. Is that, is that just a chance thing that you've found the program that really works for you at that time? And I think there's an element of that, but, um, but how adaptable you are as a, as a species or as a, as a carrier of muscle cells, that seems to be a huge factor. Is, are we any closer to understanding that? Uh, no, I don't think we are, Steve. Quite Damn frankly, it. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I think we're, it, you know, as, as coaches, practitioners, and scientists, we're 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 really trying to feel our way through that. But I, I suspect the coaches are probably closer to understanding it uh, th- than we are. You know, as scientists in in laboratories and, and using our inverted commas evidence base to inform practice. Um, a holy grail element is being able to understand how each individual might respond to a particular stimulus and how we can try and address that in, in the best way we possibly can in order to facilitate the adaptive response that we, that we want. And it, it is very individualised. And whilst we might get relatively homogenous groups, for example, a group of footballers, for example, might look on the outside relatively homogenous, but of course their responses to different exercise stimulus will be very, very different. Mm. Okay, so um, the, the the question that's popping into my mind now is about then honing in about what works, what helps, what can help an athlete move forward, but why? Uh, so we've talked about a modest effect for something like ice baths, um, cherry juice, etc. Are we talking about something that can help you relatively short term? that might not necessarily help longer term. Can you help us differentiate between the things that, that might help you acutely versus the things that you might want to avoid in your fundamental training that could um, allow you to uh, simply over the course of a year or a couple of years actually grow and develop even further? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably worth rewinding it a little bit, actually, and and just thinking about exercise as this, this stimulus, um, if you like, um, and as a natural process of the training stimulus that you're providing your individual, you're, you're essentially causing this uh, immune response. So, and often it's inflammatory mediated, um, and that causes this whole cascade of um, an increase in reactive oxygen species. And both inflammation and reactive oxygen species are really important factors, very important signaling pathways for adaptation. So, if you abate those in some way, shape or form, then you have the potential to uh, reduce the adaptive response. And actually, there's some pretty good uh, evidence that's suggesting that by reducing that inflammatory response, then you can reduce the amount of adaptation. And certainly from resistance exercise, it's much less clear in endurance exercise. And in fact, in some cases, it's shown that actually it could potentially be facilitatory. And it's, which is really dichotomous. So you, again, you go back to that, that issue of having um, a concurrent sport where endurance qualities and strength qualities are important. Where does, you know, what do you do? Um, okay. So an example there might be application of ice baths, which seem to m- might promote some endurance qualities like mitochondria, but actually could really interfere with the, the muscle synthesis for strength and power. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that, Steve. So, and that's some of the pre- preliminary evidence that's out there at the moment suggests that actually cold water immersion might be 
might actually be an important uh, facilitating factor for endurance or the AMPK pathway that's associated with endurance adaptation, whereas it might be blocking those mTOR pathways that are associated with strength gains and muscle protein synthesis, skeletal muscle hypertrophy, and and, and ultimately gains in strength. So there might be sports where that can benefit perhaps more than others um, from these sorts of things. And it also goes along the lines of thinking, well, actually when should I use this and maybe there's an opportunity to periodize the type of uh, recovery strategies that we have and the acute versus chronic argument is really uh, really valuable here so um, if you're looking for longer term adaptations particularly with strength then you know throwing yourself in cold water immersion might not be the best thing for you to do it might be that you can sit and stew in it a little bit if that makes sense um so you know having a little bit of soreness uh dysfunction you know um stiff muscles a little bit of swelling you know what maybe you need to dry your eyes and and crack on with it um whereas you know for for the endurance athlete maybe that's actually not a bad thing to be able to to do And, and interestingly a lot of our uh our own gb athletes are are throwing themselves into cold water immersion and uh, you know anecdotally they they feel like they're benefiting from that so that's more of the chronic i suppose responses but acutely i think that recovery strategies absolutely have a place um so for example when we have congested fixtures or there are repeated rounds that you need to compete at, at the very very highest level and we're not interested in adaptive responses we just need to get back to where we were because when you enter that competition you are at a particular level which we'll say is high and you just want to maintain that so um, a a great example is probably the GB hockey team um, who uh, in the last games were were extremely successful and um, those guys were doing somewhere in the region I think it was eight games in 14 days so some of them were back-to-back games so how do you manage that you know this is a this is an absolutely brutal playing regime and you hear a lot about um uh, premier league footballers and and you know potentially having to do two and even three days um sorry three games within a, a week or 10 days um this this is another level um so you, you know you could potentially have three games in three days during an olympic hockey tournament so actually throwing the kitchen sink at every single recovery strategy in order to try and get that team back to where they need to be is absolutely critical. Hmm. Yeah, okay. And and that's interesting because it does then become quite complicated when you've got somewhat congested fixtures. (laughs) It's not that congested, but you're still trying to peak. Um, So I'm thinking and remembering some of the work um, by one of our PhD students previously, Kate Spilsbury, where she was looking at the effect of the big bang almost that sort of a week to 10 days before your final that you're trying to elicit a big stimulus and a big adaptation because you're resting more. Uh, you've got more capacity for to, to, to respond to that training and therefore adapt, but you're putting in a big training session that some of that, that could be a, that could be a round. It could be a semi-final or it could be a, um, a quarterfinal, that sort of thing. So actually a heavy stimulus just before giving this sort of super boost, super compensation, that becomes quite complicated for a coach to navigate, doesn't it? 
Yeah, and, and again, that's that's probably delivered by um, thought processes that go within the team that supports that athlete on a day-to-day basis and what they see and what they observe on an individual. Uh, so I, I don't think any of that is derived from um, from the science base necessarily. I think it's based on on what that individual responses might be. I think also there's you know there's probably parallels there from from um, uh, you know, Olympic sprint track cycling, you know, where, where things like tapering, particularly before major competitions might be very, very different between males and females um, in order to try and keep that maximum strength and thereby maximum power output as high as possible uh, in each individual. So it's, it's not a, it's not a one size fits all for sure. What's interesting about this idea of, of massage is the commonly held view that it works. And it's quite difficult to break that when you're working with an athlete. Uh, break it in terms of convince somebody of a, of a pattern or routine or a practice for them to adopt against that's counter to their belief. So um, I know you're a physiologist, Glenn, but can you just go wild in the aisles here with um, and and sort of beyond into that psycho uh, physiological space in terms of look? And if an athlete is convinced that it works, uh, is there some sort of placebo or additional benefit that the athlete could be uh, acquiring there? Yeah, it's a really good point, Steve, and I think is is something that. Um, it, genuinely needs to be considered because I, I think when you when you're first considering about applying any kind of recovery strategy is is the first thing is is it having a negative effect um so it's all about cost benefit i suppose so the first thing is is it having a negative effect if it isn't then okay let's have a little look at it and it, it, there might not necessarily be the data to support it but the athlete really enjoys it um, and actually says they benefit from it. And what you want to get from your athlete at the beginning of a training session or competition is just saying, I feel fantastic, or I feel better than I would have done otherwise. And I've got a really good example of that. So there's some data, um, it's unpublished actually, from a guy called Christian Cook, who I suspect you're familiar with. Mm, yeah, uh, I know Christian well. Yeah, so Christian did this really interesting study with rugby players. Um, and uh, pro rugby players, so the, you know these guys are you know top of top of the food chain, so to speak. And he had them split into two groups. So one group liked massage, and then the other group didn't like massage. So what they did, they got um, their regular massage therapist to give them um, a massage after a standardised training session, and then looked at their performance the following day. So the guys that enjoyed massage had their normal therapist give them a massage. The following day they came in, performed pretty well, close to back to where they would have been. The guys that didn't like it didn't perform very well at all. The guys then did another training session with uh, a, another massage therapist, completely qualified, all very, very... <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> Keep going, this is great. <laughs> so so, so uh, they got... a an equally qualified sports massage therapist. And the guys that liked massage therapy did pretty well, but not quite as well as the, the guy that they, they knew before. Okay, so a trusted aspect. Let's, yeah. Let's, um, let's give the study some legitimacy. And all, um, yeah. yeah. So so trusted. 
you, you are good, but uh, somebody else that's that's good but not unknown, and they didn't do quite as well. Yeah, exa- exactly that, Steve. And then the guys that didn't like massage didn't do very well at all. So they brought in a third practitioner who happened to be a very young, attractive female, no qualifications whatsoever, and guess what happened? Everyone got better. So what does that tell you? It might tell you something about the nature of rugby players, perhaps. But but what that does tell you is that if they feel that it is a, a good intervention, uh, they probably like to have a positive effect from it. So it, so whilst there might be a little bit of smoke and mirrors, athlete belief in what you're receiving is absolutely critical. So if you get a good buy-in from people and they feel like it's going to have a positive effect, then it will. So the other end of that spectrum is if you throw athletes into cold water immersion who don't like it, but you think, oh, no, they'll definitely have a positive effect and they don't enjoy it, the chances are they're not going to perform particularly well. So there's this sort of balance to be had about using not only what athletes enjoy, but also what they believe is going to help them to have a positive effect for their recovery. We should uh, we should get Daniel Lieberman, our last guest, in about the sort of evolutionary aspects of the display or the mating potential, and and how that might be. Actually, I need to, I need to perform. Sorry, that's the right. That's the wrong word. Um, I need to. <laughs> I don't know what the right word is. I've, I've, I'm embarrassing myself. Um, I need to display versus. And let me try and get become a bit more serious now about this in the sense that if I don't like this, I don't believe in this, I'm actually creating a bit of a small stress response of thinking, I don't want that in my life. Yeah. Uh, and that potentially being part of the, the equation yeah. too. Yeah. And actually, aside of that, Steve, what's also interesting is that I think sometimes, you know, support staff, you know, you might be sitting on the sideline and going, hey, we've got the Emperor's new clothes. We're going to throw this at the squad this week. And um, there isn't been really any communication to the squad. And then they're just thrown this thing and expected to take it on board and everything's going to be fine. So, you know, having that conversation, I think, with, with you know, the bigger, the bigger squad, the bigger support team and just saying, look, we've got this thing, whatever that might be, and we're going to apply it this week in the hopes that. And if you provide a little bit of understanding to the end user, then I think you get much more buy-in. I mean, you wouldn't go to the shops, would you, and and uh, buy something that you hadn't necessarily, you know, tried on or or seen or you know or knew anything about. You know, that usually have some information about about what you're doing and and why you might be doing it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. That I think that um, a lot of people in support of athletes need to be aware of that that having some sort of cynicism, scepticism about particular treatment method when they, when you know the early adopters are doing everything all the time the one thing I, I think is is useful to recognize is overload for an athlete um, because if you've got to if you've got to do your warm-up you've got to do your priming you've got to do your glute activator you've got to take your um, beetroot juice you've then got to do some mental rehearsal and that's even before you've started exercising it can become quite overwhelming and it means that you're constantly searching for quality in all of those and and actually holding stuff back from an athlete and coach is often quite a good idea um thinking about how you'd go into a big competition often athletes just say i just want the simple focus 
I want a couple of strategies that I can use. I want plan A and I want a nice plan B that I'm used to because plan A is often not something I can do and deliver on. Uh, Plan B and a plan C if I need to, knowing that plan C is going to work really well for me, but I can't have 101 things to do and then have to sort of, uh, it sort of becomes a big project management exercise then. Yeah. And I imagine, I imagine there'd be an awful lot of stress around that as well, you know, because it's not just about the performance. You've then got to worry about doing all these other bits and pieces in and around it. And I could imagine it being like cognitively yes. super, super stressy. Is, is that sense of, oh, I've forgotten my compression stockings. <laughs> well, okay. Well, that was, that was another thing I could have thrown in, but it's not there now, but so you know, get over it, as opposed to that's absolutely critical for me and being wedded mm. to that idea. Yeah. Um, are there any other sort of common mistakes that people are making in this space around, around recovery strategies? You've mentioned a, a couple, you've alluded to a few uh, almost overkill ideas of if that works, then more of it must be. But are there any other common mistakes you're observing? Yeah, I, I think probably, you know, we need to try and reflect on whether you need to intervene at all. You know, sometimes um, it's better to let sleeping dogs lie. Um, so I, I think you probably need to reflect on what the purpose of the session is, what the purpose of the, the microcycle is and what the bigger picture is, when in the season it is. Um, it, is it necessary for me to get back to the baseline as quickly as possible? Am I worried about adaptation? So those sorts of things, those sorts of conversations can help whether you actually need to do anything at all. Um, And if you are thinking, do you know what? I need to understand this, understand why you might be seeing these performance decrements. And that will give you a really good idea about what sort of intervention you might want to use. So, for example, um, like Nick Matthews is a great example, actually, where Nick had to had to uh, be in repeated games with less than an hour in between. So he's, he's obviously got to try and recover as best he possibly can. But throwing him into cold water immersion is not going to do it. So for, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple example, but it gives you a sort of a, a flavour for the sorts of things that you can and, and can't use, depending on the window of opportunity that you've got. Um, do the basics really well. Make sure you hydrate, make sure you've got the right nutrition on board, try and sleep as best you possibly can. And if you get those things right, then you have an opportunity then, I think, for the recovery strategy to have a positive effect. Athlete belief, which we've spoken a little bit about, won't go into that a little anymore, but 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 just simply that, you know, you've got buy-in from your athlete and they understand what you're trying to achieve from the intervention. And then lastly, I suppose, is this idea about, you know, do I need to recover them now or is this as much more of a longer term gain? So am I going to affect potentially negatively the adaptive response? Um, I suppose in some kind of trade off for an acute recovery intervention having a positive effect. So so you've got this sort of acute versus chronic um, Again, dichotomy, I suppose, you, is, is the word I like to use for it. And, you know, should I intervene or should I should I not? I like that. And um, I, I do think there is some del- deliberate practice when you're coaching and supporting people where you've got to you've got to 
actually say that you're not doing something. <laughs> We're deliberately not going to be doing additional recovery techniques. <laughs> yeah. Maybe with a bit of a strokey beard sort of look and a bit of wisdom to it, as in, yes, my judgment is we're going to do nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, I think it's important to signal, to say, uh, look, look, we're choosing to keep this um, the, the stimulus strong, the, the, let the adaptation, this is going to be focused on, on getting a response for you. I like that. I mean, broadly, Steve, you could, you could actually put that into your periodized year where you would you, you could see very clearly where you might use recovery interventions. So it might be where that, as we mentioned before, where there is particular fixture congestion, um, where the train you might maybe within a training camp environment, you are you know what, we're just gonna let them stew in it a little bit and then we'll we'll work on recovery when they return um in that sort of super compensation phase. You know, so there are different ways and, and means in, in which you might want to apply them. And I think very broadly you can look at your periodized year. Um, from a very high level and decide quite quickly, do you know what? We probably need something here in this particular area. We need nothing. So, you know, you've got that. You can, you can have those sort of discussions fairly early. I think. You're much more subtle than I am, Glenn, around the terminology stew. It sounds like you're, you're making a nice supper. Um, I'm thinking about proving some bread and you said, dry, dry your eyes. We used to call it sit in the shit and, <laughs> and, and suffer, you know, that athlete when, when they're, they're, they're thinking, I, I just want to get out of this because I'm just so deep in the pain cave and would go, no, that's exactly where you need to be. <laughs> You know, it points to cool downs as well, doesn't it? I'm, I'm, I've always got this in my head about cool downs, about whether we're actually blunting the training effect. You spend sort of 20, 30 minutes doing interval work, um, whipping up your metabolites and creating all this sort of discomfort, which is the stimulus. And then, oh, no, no, we've got to get rid of it. We've got to, we've got to try and clear stuff away, which is... I suppose it's a compressed version of what you started talking about at the beginning around that interference. What, where are you on that? Because I, I, I'm not sure about cool downs in that sense. Yeah, I just wonder whether you just need to sit in your seat and cry a little bit and just and, and deal with it. I, I, you know, as you sort of mentioned before, I've often wondered, Steve, and I just I don't know what the answer is. Um, but it, it, it does sound like, say, if you're getting this metabolic soup that you're putting someone in, do you really want to? be taking them out of it so quickly maybe just if you can have a warm down just give it half an hour or i don't know i don't know what the window what that window might be it's really it's it's really really strange and i think almost it's ritual as much as anything else and i think far too often we are governed by the dogma well this is what we've always done so therefore it must be true and and yeah or acute studies informing long-term practice uh, if, it, if it made me feel better tomorrow, then I'll do it all the time, as opposed to thinking, what what's the change? As Haley Tullett said, well, am I actually improving or not? Or the I think we're we're also equally culpable as scientists of of saying, well, lactic acid bad, get rid of it, cool down, uh, reuse it, as opposed to that might be part of the. The stew, as you're saying, you know, to, to actually that causes the the stimulus. Oh, I'm I'm sure that all of those things are, you know, are very very important cell signaling pathways that that turn up the volume on those adaptive responses. So it does it does seem 
it does seem almost uh, counterintuitive then to then to get rid of that uh, that metabolic soup, especially when it means doing more, and to, in terms of exposing more force to the skeleton, uh, additional training volume, you know, all these sorts of things that that might be causing a breakdown of injury and uh, and you know overtraining. Yeah. And also then your session is now not an hour, it's an hour and 20 minutes, isn't it? So it's, it, it, it all adds up. Yeah. Fast sprint and sit in it. That's what, that's what we've just concluded from that. <laughs> so given your position as a researcher and you'll be surveying the field, looking for the different areas of knowledge and discovery from, from your point of view, what are you seeing that, that might offer new ground for breakthroughs in this area? Uh, so, some of the things that I'm, really interested and in, I think might be, you know, taking the field to, to another level is understanding how different recovery strategies might influence the adaptive response. So there's been some work in the last year or two that's been doing some very cool uh, work, for example, on cold water immersion and trying to understand what the, the implications for longer term adaptation are. Um, and I think that's really important for us to understand because I think, you know, we, uh, as, a, as a practitioner and, and someone that's trying to influence practice, that's really important um, because you, you don't want anything detrimental to happen to your athlete. So, you know, so understanding the bigger picture is, is really, really important. Um, going back to the, the, the doing the simple things well, I think that that's really, really important. Um, and what I actually learned from the cherry juice stuff is that, you know, there are all sorts of positive things that you can potentially get just from eating fruits and vegetables and just having a really rich diet. So I don't want to be touting about <laughs> about cherry juice, but I think it does tell you a lesson about, you know, these foods that are rich in things like polyphenols, for example, can potentially have a really beneficial effect. At worst, you know, you're going to be getting a portion of fruit and vegetables that you might not necessarily have otherwise had. Uh, you know, and at best, it can help you, uh, you know, facilitate recovery. So, you know, there, there, there are lots and lots of, um, you know, positive things, I think, that can happen just from doing doing things very, very simply. Um, we're doing a little bit of work, actually, with um, something called face. Can I, can I just ask yeah. you on that, Glenn? Yeah, yeah. Um, so can I take from that that actually the tart cherry juice um, effect is, is sort of isolating a single foodstuff that has a super high concentration of certain nutrients and certain certain um, chemicals, effectively, that has an effect. Whereas actually, what you're talking about is you're not the, the prescription shouldn't necessarily be t- cherry juice every day. It's a healthy diet every day that nudges and provides a sort of a microclimate within the muscle cell that that just allows you to respond to training more effectively yeah and and what's interesting about those those foods i'll call them functional foods so essentially foods that provide an additional value above and beyond your calories um so those sorts of foods are really interesting because um that there's no evidence um at all that they have a negative effect in terms of adaptation um, and what I've also seen is that that whilst it might be influencing things like oxidative stress um, and 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 there's some reasonably strong evidence to suggest that inflammation is is impacted intuitively, particularly on the basis of what we've sort of spoken about. It's like, oh, hang on, that's a that's alarm bells. It doesn't turn off these signaling responses. It simply turns down the volume. 
So you're still getting a response, but not necessarily as dramatic as, uh, as, as it might have been. So I think that sometimes we're th- thinking, oh, well, well, surely then if you're, if you're getting more of that, then that's a, that's a, surely you want more and more of that. And you just go more and more. Uh, and you could see why um, someone's behaviour might change and say, well, actually, I might take 30 mils of uh, cherry juice concentrate and they get a good response. But do you know what? Maybe I'll take 60. Or maybe I'll take yeah, okay. maybe I'll take ninety. So more is not necessarily better. So looking at the other side of the coin, it's a bit like caffeine in that sense. A bit like caffeine, where exactly. The, the, the it's caffeine supplementation uh, to to boost lipolysis, fat burning, etc., or equally uh, muscle stimulation. People originally just thought, right, let's just gain the caffeine, and they were wired on the start line before it all got sort of restricted. Um, whereas now, actually, it's quite a more subtle dose to get the right kind of effect, that kind of le- that um, activation. Yeah, yeah, caffeine's an interesting one, and actually, that illustrates the point brilliantly. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. <laughs> thank, you know, thank you. I'm still, I'm still there. I'm, ju- I'm still just reaching back to my knowledge. <laughs> but they've got this, this got this inverted U shape, isn't it? I don't know what. That's another. That's another thing. Why do they call it an inverted U? Why don't they call it an N? Anyway, <laughs> discuss. <laughs> So, or a bump. Well, exactly. So you you know you you get this um, an increase in in caffeine concentration and your arousal goes up uh, to a point, and then if you take more and more, then actually the, what you're able to focus on in your cues become much much more narrowed, and your performance decreases. And that's exactly the same, I think, for for a lot of other things. It's getting to a point where you you, you know that sweet spot, if you like. And I think by taking too much or too little, then you avoid. You avoid perhaps hitting that sweet spot, but again, it goes back to that: where is it? Where is that sweet spot? So you you were going to um, digress. I, I interrupted you. You're talking about some other uh, potential developments or whether where the future might lie with this. Oh yeah. So we I was talking a little bit about um, uh, well, it's, it's kind of a, a build on, if you like, from from the cold water immersion work that we'd done done before, and particularly some of the work of Joffe Leader at, at the EIS. Um, but um, but since then we've had a development. We've been working on something called phase change material, um, which is a really cool uh, invention actually that was was derived from NASA, I believe. And, and essentially, it looks a bit like a cold pack, but it, but it stays cold for extended periods of time. So you can apply it to the skin surface, reduce the intramuscular temperature for an extended period of time. So I think some of the big limitations that you have with cold water immersion is that you can only generally tolerate it for a relatively short period of time. So uh, even throwing yourself into 15 degrees of, of um, cool water is is not that tolerable for very long. Uh, and a lot of, interestingly, this is, this is a, a, a sideline of this, uh, is that a lot of the research is doing cold water immersion with things like 8 degrees Celsius for things like 20 minutes. Now, I, I couldn't stand that for that sort of duration. So it, to give you some idea, that's like sitting in the North Sea in the winter months for 20 minutes without moving. So it's pretty brutal. And interestingly, a lot of that research that's come out around negative adaptations, 
as a result of doing cold water immersion are based on doing things like eight degrees for 20 minutes. It just doesn't happen in the real world. So, you know, we, we need to be a little bit cautious when we interpret some of the some of these data. Um, so, yeah, they're having a, a very, very profound stimulus, if you like, that's not necessarily real world. And they're showing that it's affecting protein synthesis. It's like, well... Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's because your body's shutting down. Yeah, it, it, it's exactly, you know, so the muscle the muscle was basically completely almost dormant. Um, but anyway, but, but aside of that, but this, this phase change material is pretty cool because, uh, no pun intended, in that you can apply it for an extended <laughs> period. You, <laughs> you can, you can, you can ex- extend the duration in which you, you apply it. Um, and, and we've seen some really nice data that have, uh, that have helped all sorts of people from muscle damage, but then also from uh, baseball pitches as well um, and a, a whole number of other things. So I see the application for this acutely for in those t- tournament scenarios, if you like, where you could use this um, to, to facilitate recovery. But actually, I think more longer term, I think that this has got a really good uh, influence potentially for injury management, acute injury management. So you could see very quickly how you could put some ice on someone on the pitch side that's had a hamstring tear, for example, get that tissue temperature down to a low level, and then after that, apply the phase change material for an extended period of time. So you're stopping that bleed um, from being almost catastrophic, if you like, and, and having an inflammatory response that you don't really want and you're trying to manage as best as possible. So there are there are different ways, I think, in which this could be applied. But that's a really exciting development. Um, and there are lots of other things that are, that are coming coming out and about. But I think the functional foods is also a really nice area that, um, well, it, we, we're learning more and more about every day because um, I think the foods that we, we you know we've we have available to us are so rich and varied now, um, and we don't really understand all of the potential benefits. But they are generally pretty good for you. So I think the lesson is just have a good balanced diet of, of fruit and vegetables, particularly those fruits and vegetables that are red and blue in colour. Those are the ones that have got usually the, the goodies tucked inside them. All right. That's that's a nice little simple um, message to, to kind of start to wrap up on. Red red and blue. Bit of green? Bit of green in there as well? Yeah. You know, bit green. well, it was certainly the, the things that we've been looking at are things, are things like anthocyanins and, and polyphenols. And they've got sort of anti-inflammatory, antioxidative properties. The green stuff is um, is less so. So, but that has often the green stuff's got things like um, you know maybe dietary nitrate or yeah, okay. you know those uh, iron, for example, some other, other other bits and pieces. So it's not about just reds and blues, but if you want those right. more, yeah, nice. Basically, not beige food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if, it, if it's beige, your polyphenol counts not that high. Yeah, exactly. So not too much on the fish and chips. No. All right, look, Glenn, I, I could talk to you for for days on this because it's such a fascinating topic, and and it, whilst it has got some complexities, I think there's some just some nuance there that that hearing some of these uh, ideas, the the subtleties, the the um, periodized approach the contextual application of this is, is important for people to recognize um thank you so much glenn i'm going to go and have a look at um, my ca- uh, catastrophe cusp and i'm going to phone up the phase change marketing people with their new slogan it's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much glenn steve thank you very much for having me i appreciate it 
You can give Glyn a follow on Twitter at Glyn Howitson. That's Glyn with a Y. I'm also on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and supporting champions. You can check out on Twitter at support underscore champs. And we're on LinkedIn and Instagram too. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support and encourage us too, then please do leave a review on iTunes. It definitely helps the show. 